I'm gonna refill my drink real fast. Be right back. To have ourselves a snack. Too, Ryan. Do you have any resolutions? I resolve to continue being perfect. So you're not interested in exercising more and working out like like most Americans? Wouldn't you say this podcast with each other is enough of a workout for our souls? It's a workout for our souls, but Ruman, what about your body? <laughs> Ryan, I weight lift and run. You know, I, I carry one kid while chasing the other every damn day. <laughs> then... I'm really curious how you responded to this week's book, Alison Bechdel's The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Now, Bechdel, of course, had a cult following with her strip called Dykes to Watch Out For before really hitting it big with her memoir about her father, Fun Home. She followed that up with a book about her mother called Are You My Mother? And in mid-2021, she came out with her quote-unquote exercise book, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, which hit pretty much everyone's top ten list. And I think it's actually a great book to kick off 2022 because it's not just about our relationship with exercise and physical activity. It's about our relationship with our bodies as we age and deteriorate. It's about our mortality and our constant grasping at ways to overcome it. It's about the way our physicality connects to our sense of self and our spirituality and vice versa. By our, I mean Alison Bechdel, but you know, individual experience is universal and all that. I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we, we are, are two, two guys, guys who, who are here to pump. pump you up and yet we're both fat a pig in a cage on antibiotics so Roman, how did this book change the way you think about your life you know it's funny somewhere mid-pandemic i heard allison bechdel being interviewed by terry gross on uh, npr's fresh air about this book and it caught my ear i was genuinely interested and it's not what i expected you know the first chapter kind of opens as this treatise on what does exercise and fitness mean in our society. But as you said, it's a memoir. And all three of her books are memoirs about her life. But this was the the fullest memoir, yes, about her relationship with fitness, but her relationship with work and life. And while I've not led as rich and full a life, maybe, as Allison has, because she's older than me and a accomplished like MacArthur genius, I could relate to a lot of her trials and tribulations with fitness and exercise. To be clear, she does it way more than me. I don't do it all, but there, there were kind of moments that hit and resonated and I couldn't I couldn't look away from it. It's of course about Alison Bechdel's life and her unique experiences, but there is a sort of a universe universality to what she's going through i'm about 20 years younger than her but still like the relationship with exercise like for instance when i started running you know it it feels like a body reset it does change the way you think about the world you kind of feel about your life you know and at the same time it's also kind of miserable and so that's something that (laughs) is kind of really kind of really leapt out at me at the same time this feeling you know the reason i started running i had high blood pressure and also i I didn't eat particularly well so it was it's basically it was basically an attempt for me to outrun my diet 
an attempt for me to, you know, as our, as our mutual friend, as our mutual friend, John says, it's his excuse to eat like an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, you also feel your body slowing down in a way that I hadn't before. You know, this definitely in my 30s, I was just like, shit, you know, I'm getting this weird belly fat and I'm feeling very sluggish. And so you you feel your body start to betray you in a way that it hadn't before. Like when you're a teenager, you're just eating hamburgers, piling it all in there and you're just fine. Um, and so there's this, you know, the, the, for, for me, exercise always kind of came as sort of like this response to this awareness of not only my mortality, but also the mortality of those around me. You know, we're kind of at the age, of course, where we start to worry about our parents as mm. well. And I don't know. I mean, for me, it's always kind of felt like as long as I stay healthy, A, my parents don't have to worry about me. But also, it kind of creates this illusion of health around you. You, you kind, of, kind of almost feel like you can project it onto other people. Now, that's not something I don't think Bechdel mentions in her book, but that, that was certainly like how I thought about uh, it, my own exercise regimen and why it was important for me. And it did, you know, it did tie to, to feelings of mortality. It's interesting because this book, definitely more than a lot of the books we've read, maybe because it's such a deep personal story, it really does force a lot more self-reflection on yourself and your habits and your mortality because, again, this kind of intimate journey with Allison through the decades. Now, it's it's funny that you went to the physicality of it because, for me, exercise – and I'm not someone who works out. I'm not someone who exercises regularly. Eats relatively healthily, but it's – um. Exercise and activity has always been a mental thing for me. It's been a clearing house for my mind. Running, going for a hike in nature, even going for a hike with a friend or a loved one. Sailing. You're just so entranced in the activity, not even necessarily your surroundings, and everything else melts away. The mm. podcast that you've got to get ready, that deadline you've got for work, that thing with your kids, that thing with your parents, it all just melts away and lets your brain breathe. And yeah. That's in this world full of distraction, which even more so now, full of anxiety, even more so now, activity is kind of one of the only things that can clear my mind. Bechdel talks about exercising mm. to the point of exhaustion. She talks about working to the point of exhaustion. It was just kind of her obsessive personality that probably led her into this um, this craze. I don't want to call it a fitness craze, this activity craze. Yeah, I, I was uh, listening to an interview, and she mentioned it was one of the ways that she that helped manage her anxiety. And I think maybe I, I'm speculating here, but I kind of wonder if, you know, exercise and writing and drawing all contribute to her ability to know herself and to achieve some something close to self-actualization. Um, and I think alcohol was also kind of a part of it. She mentions her drinking as a way to kind of quell some of the turmoil that's going on inside of her. Well, I think we all have, you know, habits and practices, some, and they don't all have to be healthy, to be clear, but constructive. Like, look, if you if you knit and that helps with your thing, better that you knit because you'll have a sweater at the end of it versus like going out and binge drinking, right? Her drinking was something that she paired with her working, right? And that's okay because at the end of it, she had, I mean, her accomplishments speak for themselves the things that she's been able to do and some of it you know at what cost she talks about the cost of her personal life a little bit the cost to her health but she was kind of supplanting that with or countering that with her her exercise so i guess what i'd say is like it's okay to have these habits as we all have well, a need for habits to fill that in ourselves 
but she found a way to have it be constructive and productive. I think she's also mentioned, you know, the imposter syndrome she she has as she kind of got more success and the the realization that she's kind of doing this now in front of an audience versus when she was, you know, doing Dykes to Look Out For. It was it was a lot. It was a much smaller audience. And now it's she's kind of a she's she's known nationally, probably internationally as well. And I'm sure that despite the success, it can be a little bit self-defeating because that brings even more anxiety because now you realize you are performing and to to a huge audience and that can kind of make you forget about yourself about who you are because well, e- you're always on for somebody else well even in this book i mean she is a main character she is a narrator in this book and so she is performing she's literally in the the craft of drawing the story for this book she is a performative artist because she's narrating, she's telling you, she's looking straight at you in some cases. Um, and it's a lot. And, you know, it's it's funny. I, she has had the success. I was just thinking a lot about that. But the success, she didn't just write Fun Home and it came out of nowhere. She perfected her craft with her strip, you know, this kind of niche script strip over and over and over again. And I don't know. I, th- I think a lot about some of the stuff we're doing. I mean, this podcast is just a silly, fun project, but it's like we're not going to write a book tomorrow. But by getting more reps and conversations and observances and studies, um, you are craft. We are we being people. The more you do something, the more you're crafting a skill and figuring a voice out. You're getting more reps out. You're you're articulating things, and that's what's really interesting. But the fact that it did start to turn into this, the what I worry about for her is is the only way she can achieve kind of literary success is to have these deeply personal stories that she has to tell was that, like that is that a bad thing i mean that, that's that... well it's performative you were ta- it's performative and even she has some regret with that like you know wouldn't it just be nice to tell a fictional well being the character of yourself over and over my and over again? my interpretation of that and i could be wrong is that this is the way she, she she works towards understanding herself and working out problems within her own life. It's telling mm. these stories. It's sort of mm. like a journal for her. And she invites us along to, to read it, you know, to kind of like see this intimate part of her. I don't get the sense Alison Beck don't, you know, wants to tell fictional stories. She's, I get the sense she's doing this so to help her understand things about her life and about her past. When she did Fun Home, it was to help her understand her dad and her relationship with her dad and her relationship with her dad's death. I have not read the book that she wrote about her mother. Are you Are you my mother, right? Yeah, I haven't read, read that yet, but I would assume that it's sort of similar. She's trying to work out her relationship with her mother. And in this book, she's trying to work out her relationship with herself through the decades. So that's my, my take on her decision to do these. And they take a long time. Like, I think she was working on Fun Home for six seven, eight years. I mean, I think Are You My Mother for about the same period of time. I know this was several years in the making. This isn't something that she does very quickly. This is something that right. she kind of puts a lot of thought in and she has to kind of, I'm sure, figure out what's going on in her life and also how to communicate it and also how to communicate it in an illustrated fashion. You could almost argue fiction is easier. Yeah, right? Because if something doesn't work out, you can just be like, all right, I'll just fill this in with whatever. Well, and you're not seeking, I mean, you might be seeking your own personal truth, but to your point, the the creation of the story is almost the journey 
that she's on. Yeah, she's very, you know, especially with this one, she's kind of very aware of the limitations of, you know, of her understanding, and she she articulates it at different areas in the in the book. You can definitely see her working things out. I mean, towards the end, she's like, "Fuck, I have this deadline. I got to figure out how to end <laughs> this book." I mean, she, it's almost it's it's almost sort of like, "All right, here we go. I'm I'm almost towards the end." You can almost see her sort of like galloping towards the finish line, which I actually found kind of charming. I I, I like seeing that creative process, especially for a book like this, which is, you know, she doesn't have she 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 takes on a lot. She doesn't have all the answers, but, you know, we don't expect her to have all the answers either. She's still kind of on this journey of discovery because, you know, she's she she ends the book in the right now in her 60s. And there's still more for her to 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 experience, I would hope. Well, I was going to say it's interesting that, you know, I know we're talking about Alice and Beckdale now, but, you know, the first part of this, we were talking really kind of about ourselves and our own relationship to exercise and and I feel like this activity, book more activity, than activity, not exercise, exercise slash activity. But I feel like this book. Okay, so the only one I read was Fun Home, but but <laughs> this book, you know, Fun Home was a very specific experience, right? And this one is too. But there's more of a universality to you know to to superhuman strength, and maybe I mean, I mean, maybe it's just that what what Alice and Bechdel is going through here specifically is is something that probably everyone goes through it's this feeling of mortality this feeling of like how do we relate to our to our own bodies yeah i mean it's it's the the, the universal nature isn't just it's relating to yourself because what's interesting is probably a good half of this book has nothing to do with exercise right it has to do with finding oneself figuring out work in life because it's autobiographical you see her relationships and what she has working and not living with someone living in the city living out in the sticks i i would imagine this is the more this is the one of greater more universal appeal because it speaks to not just something we think about like we all have a relationship with ourselves we have a relationship with the state of our body, our health, our mental health, our physical health. And that's what this book is really about, something we all experience. How did you feel about her? It was a very, the thing that was harder to relate to, but that actually made it more relatable was when she would introduce these perspectives of all of these authors and mm. writers that she admired. How did you feel yeah. about her bringing them into the picture? I actually liked it a lot. You know, it actually kind of reminded me of Fun Home, which is about her dad and her relationship with her dad. And in that book... It was her, her, the way she related to her dad, the real bond she had with her dad, which came later in life, was through literature and fiction, Proust and Ulysses and, and the written word, because it, it was sort of like, it was sort of like their bridge, the way they could actually talk to each other. And in this one, it kind of has a similar effect. She's kind of reaching out to Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Wordsworth and Margaret Fuller and looking at not only their work and their relationship with their work and their exercise and their self-medication and trying and, and kind of relating it to her life and seeing these other authors, she's also starting it – it helps her make sense of her own life and her own relationship with work and exercise and, and alcohol. So I actually, I actually found that really, really fascinating, and it, it reminded me a lot of what she did with Fun Home as well. You know, she uses literature – as a way to understand life. And I feel like the best literature actually does that. 
whether it's fiction or poetry or whatever, right? It creates a lens through which we can gain understanding and comprehension to stuff that would ordinarily be incomprehensible. But you know, so much of it was actually history lessons about these authors and these writers, and it actually reminded me of what Jean Lun Yang does in Dragon Hoops. But I think he does it in a couple of other books, and. I kind of like the the education. Well, I, I didn't know as much about the other authors, Jack Kerouac being someone I admire. You know, I read On the Road in my 20s, like everyone's supposed to. But reading about Dharma bums, reading about his own life and his lack of success and living with his mom and things like that, like uh, the tidbits of history. And they weren't necessarily relatable back to her. Like that thing that happened to them happened to me. But it was that person living that thing, this person that I admire experienced this thing, had this shortcoming, had this questioning, and I, Allison, also had it. And that really just kind of ingratiated her to me. Like, I was just, I really was like, wow, okay, I see what you're doing here, and I'm buying it, and I want more of this. For me, there was there's a sort of warning, especially with the Kerouac stuff, because she points out Kerouac has his moments of, of you know, nirvana, you know, he, where he has his moments where he seems to be like, you know, of self-actualization, but ultimately in his 40s, he drinks himself to death, right? He's still mm-hmm. kind of tied to his mother in a very unhealthy way. He's tied to alcohol in a very unhealthy way. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was tied to laudanum in a very unhealthy way. And, I, you know, I think she kind of sees those as sort of warning signs, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's this constant battle where you might achieve something, you know, you might climb the peak, or you might, you know, you might have run that marathon or whatever. But it's, temporary right there's a cost and there's a cost yeah you can you and you can always sort of slide back into you know into something that is is much less healthy so that that's kind of how i saw the way she was relating to these people it's not it's 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 kind of interesting because in some parts it's aspirational but you also see the conflict she admires kerouac but you know there's this actually this this scene where she when she's younger reading kerouac and she's like oh he's he's a misogynist you know, so she's kind of like she acknowledges some of the problems with his work and the way Kerouac views women, just as she admires aspects of his journey. And then, of course, you know, she's she's very aware of how Kerouac of Ker- how Kerouac died. So, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, in literature, literature can be a lens and help us comprehend our lives. But I think in Bechdel's case, the biographies of these authors also did that. It kind of helped her frame her own living situation and where she was at that moment in her life. I also think there's an element of immortality comes with a price. Um, All of these people are kind of immortal people who made these kind of amazing seminal works. But the thing that was a result of that work or the thing that led to them being able to create the work, and I, I really kind of stick with Kerouac, really led to their own undoing or their own unhappiness. And she talks about that, like, you know, professional success at the at the expense of my personal life and some of her failed relationships. And even like her prior to her current relationship, the woman who actually colored this book was a failed relationship because she was too obsessive about her work and her fitness and other things mm. as well. And it's almost like to achieve greatness, you must sacrifice something. And... And, you know, it's funny, I, I hate to keep bringing up another podcast I do, the one where I interview like executives and CEOs and stuff, but there is that, like you ask them that work-life balance question, they're like, oh, there's no such thing, or, well, I'm glad my wife took care of all that for me, right? And now I'm great friends with my kids, but of course it's easy because I can fail and I have <laughs> all the money 
but and I man, I really play that back to myself because I'd kind of ra- rather be mediocre and have a really good yeah. life. It's sort of like Bechdel and her dad, right? They only started to actually have an okay relationship when she became an adult and they could kind of talk about adult type of things. When she was a kid, he was completely not interested. There's also an interesting thing she she brings up. You know, it's it's the pain that makes the good moments, that makes life worth living in a way. You know, Mm -hmm. you kind of have the bad in order to really kind of understand the the good or, or to really appreciate the good. And I was just kind of thinking about that within the context of some of the romantic poets like Coleridge. You know, their whole thing, their whole shtick, you know, the whole reason they're into climbing these mountains and um, embracing nature is because even though it's beautiful, it can kill you, right? It, it, it Like, those, those mountains can really <laughs> fuck up your day if you step wrong. But that's what makes it so beautiful and that's what makes it so otherworldly it's the sense of the sublime that the the part of the beauty is that it is so dangerous and that kind of feels like a theme that that kind of keeps coming up with within this within this book whether it's like actual danger of you know of climbing a mountain or it's you know the pain of that happens when you when when you exercise or just you know not to be kind of trite, but the pain of, of that that comes with with existing. I mean, I went a lot more literal with it, but just because I mean, I, you got to take this shit seriously, you know. And maybe that is existing and life, but you know, having hiked mountains in the Middle East, in in Japan, in the United States, like if you do it wrong, you're gonna land in the wrong prefecture. <laughs> or, yeah. or you're going to get seriously hurt coming down that mountain in China when you try to take the shortcut. So, or, I mean, even, I can't remember which the author was, where he got to a point where he didn't know how to go up or down, and he just kind of laid there. And I've had that moment in the desert, and I'm like, well, shit, I guess this is yeah. it. <laughs> like, I no, guess I'm going to no, no. die. You know what, though? I, You know, kind of bring it back to biking and skiing. You know, you're kind of like shooting over the landscape. And in a way, you kind of feel like a god because you're flying. But at the same time, you have to be hyper aware of everything that's around you, right? If there's a pothole when you're biking, it can knock you off your bike. You know, if you got to watch out for the obstacles, the rock, the hidden rocks, the trees when you're skiing. And, you know, all of those dangers, it kind of forces you to interact with the world in a way you, you ordinarily don't interact with it if you're just walking or if you're driving your car. You know, you're less aware of some, especially if you're driving your car, you know, it's almost sort of like you're in a box and the world's just passing you by. You're not you're not attentive to all of the dangers, the potential dangers, as well as all of the little details and the beauty that that kind of exists around you. You know, so so in a way that that form of exercise kind of like integrates you into the world in a way that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to achieve. I I also do, it's this kind of hyper-awareness, you have to be one with the road or one with the whatever you're doing. But at the same time, have you ever had the experience driving or biking where you kind of do it on autopilot and you end up in the destination or at the end of the journey and you're like, oh shit, I I remember the experience, but I actually don't remember anything I just did. Was I not paying attention? And in reality, you kind of were. You were so in it to do it right. That can be kind of a scary realization. Yeah, I mean, that's also a, a kind of a special sort of, I mean, that is like the kind of the one with the road, right? Where you're, 
you know, the, what I was describing earlier, that's kind of the opposite in a way. It's sort of like you're not one with the road. You're, just, you're aware that the road can fucking kill you at any moment. But you are aware of your surroundings and hyper aware of your surroundings in a way that you wouldn't be aware of before. And then the other aspect is like, yeah, if you, when you do when you are in a situation where it's just like a flat road ahead of you, flat, you know, you know, a, a gentle slope where you can just kind of like, you know, you get into a certain rhythm. I mean, that mm-hmm. is that actually I get that more with running, you know, when you're because I kind of have a, this way you have this kind of way of breathing and this way of stepping. So that sure. you kind of. Yep. Yeah. So, so you kind of like don't have to really think about it. You just kind of like it's just sort of like the beat of a, you know, a musical beat in a way that you kind you of know, that you kind of run to. I remember when city bikes came out in New York City. And I started riding them between meetings to get around the city. And it was just a much more intimate experience with the city because the only way I knew yeah. it was cars, subways, or walking. And walking is a very slow way to get to know things. You see so much more. That's why after a while I stopped city biking and I just started walking everywhere as much as I could, even taking long walks to get to some of our lunches or whatever. Because there's this hyper-awareness to moving slower, to being immersed versus doing it the fastest, most efficient way possible. Yeah, I've well, I don't know. For for me, when I'm walking, I don't know why, but I'm just mostly kind of irritated, or <laughs> at least in New York City. <laughs> Which I mean, I guess sometimes it happens when I'm when when I'm biking around the city, but I do feel it's it's different, right? Because like you're 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 seeing parts of the city that you wouldn't ordinarily see. You know, I guess when you're when you're biking, it's here, here. Okay, I think this is it. When when I'm walking, I feel like I'm like literally in the thick of it. I'm kind of in the middle of it. And when you're inside something, it's kind of hard to see, to really kind of be aware of what's going on around you. It's just like a throng of people. But when you're biking, it's almost sort of like you see it from a kind of like a bird's eye perspective because you're going so fast. You see mm-hmm. all of the the buildings whizzing by. You see the people whizzing by. But at the same time, it's not like you're in a car where you're just seeing all of the shit through a small portal. And it's, you're just kind of glancing at it as it passes. You have to be aware of all of that stimuli because you might have to avoid it. You ha- might have to go around it. Um, you know, you just need to be aware of it because it can impact, you know, your journey in a way that they wouldn't impact your journey if you're just kind of if you're just kind of slowly walking or walking along and you have to be aware of so much more when you're walking on the sidewalk, right? It's just like the people in front of you when you're biking, it's the traffic, it's the people you have to be aware of literally everything that's, that's around you. And it can be exhausting, but it can also be exhilarating. You realize we've spoken probably like 10% of this episode about the actual book. <laughs> yeah, but I actually think that's kind of the beauty of it. Of this. Well, that's kind of the point. Of, that's kind of the point of the book, actually. Yeah, is to have this self-reflection, not necessarily a reflection with a close friend on a podcast, but it is. It is. It's meant to make you think about. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It, it's and actually, this is why I think it's such a good book for to to open up uh, the new year because, you know, this this is sort of the time for self-reflection, and I think this book more than any that we've ever read is a sort of book that will actually do that. It's not a self-help book and it's a deeply personal book, but at the same time, it's a book that will make you think about your own life and your own relationship to your body and your own relationship to your mortality. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a book that kind of like stimulates that, that self-reflection in a way that few books do. Well, and the other thing it does, this is my own like psychosis, but it's like the super accomplished people 
that we admire, right? The some of the authors that we've read, they're just people, man. Like, and she is a very flawed person, and that's a compliment because we all are. Anyone who ha- looks like they have it made and presents that they have it made are fucking lying. And she just kind of bears her truth. Not I'm more fucked up than you are, but just like, look, it's hard. The, the things that I do, the things that I've been able to accomplish, not just the superhuman feats of strength of her activity and her exercise, but the writing of the books, there is a cost and there is a toll. And I have to learn how to manage this better. And um, I, I just have a real admiration for her. And it makes me feel better about myself as someone who's trying to create and put things in this world. Yeah, I think the best compliment for an artist is that whatever they're creating kind of latches into you and changes the way that you view the world, or at least, you know, catalyzes some spark where you start to re-examine how you view the world and how you view your relationships within it. It's kind of hard to review a book like this because most of the books were like, does a plot work? You know, anything with characters? Blah, blah, blah. And this the, book, plot doesn't, the plot doesn't work? This woman's life? How dare what's she? What's going on? It's boring. No, there's no aliens. But it's it's it it works in a different way than any of the other comics that that we've reviewed. I mean, part of that is because everything else we've reviewed has been a graphic novel, and this actually is kind of more of a graphic memoir slash graphic essay. Um, and, and not actually, about that's, that's, some and not about some like terrible historical event that happened. Yeah, that actually kind of makes Alice and Bechdel unique to me. I just, just kind of thinking about Fun Home also because it's not really a plot driven book. I mean, there's stuff that happens. But you really see her kind of working out her feelings with her father in that book. And in this book, you really see her working out her feelings with her body and her exercise and her career and her anxiety. And so it's it, it kind of hits a very different register than somebody who's just trying to tell you a story. She, You can see her working out things that have been massive conflicts in her own life through her art. And you can actually, what's, what's fun about this is that you can actually see her working it out on the page through the process of her art. And as I mentioned earlier, she doesn't have all the answers and that's fine. And that's kind of, in a way, that's kind of what makes it so exhilarating because there is sort of like this question mark at the end. And, you know, this feeling that this is, I don't know, almost a dynamic a dynamic sort of novel things that not novel a dynamic piece of work things aren't fully figured out but she's still kind of working at it i mean that's it's it's sort of like we're we're kind of like seeing her in mid-motion in a way i don't know if that even makes sense it it, it does you know we've read a lot of graphic non-fictions we have not read a lot of graphic memoirs but i personally have read more than a few independent graphic memoirs over the last few years and with the exception of Jean Lun Yang, and again, maybe I'm just reading the wrong things. I guess Adrian Tomine as well. Hmm. So we have read one on this podcast. But a lot of the ones I've read are, are by female creators. Lucy Knisley. There'll be an episode in a few weeks where you and I actually got to interview Jen Wang, who did kind of a semi-fictional autobiographical account in Stargazing. But I find that there's a lot of independent female cartoonists and graphic novelists that are doing this and doing it really, really well. And I kind of want to find a way to introduce more of those into kind of our feed because not not just female written ones, but these kind of like auto 
graphic autobiographical novels, right? Like, because they're really fascinating reflections when done well on a bigger truth that we're either all experiencing or we all need to have some visibility into. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm actually looking forward also to, see, because the other thing about the graphic medium in particular is how subjective it is, because you know, it's very clear that you're seeing an interpretation, right, of the past. If somebody were to just write, hey, this is what happened in the past, it almost feels sort of repertorial. When you see it illustrated, it's very clear that you're seeing it through a subjective lens because you're seeing it through and through a cartoonist's own, you know, unique style. And that signals, hey, this is actually a subjective memory. This is me trying to figure it out. It it feels less authoritative than if it were like just in prose. And I mean that as sort of a compliment because it automatically calls into question, you know, the author's own relationship with the material and the experiences that they went through. And that kind of makes you interrogate it a lot, a lot more deeply than you would if it were just sort of like sentences on, on the page. So, you know, Ryan, instead of asking me what my New Year's resolution should be, mm. I think we should ask, tell, we should tell all of our listeners what their New Year's resolution should be. And it's to read more goddamn comic books. And honestly, like we've got a list of several <laughs> quite a few good ones that we've done on this podcast but this is a great one to start the year with and remember to always stretch your arms over your head because you got to lube up your rotator cuffs you don't want those tearing yes <laughs> so Ruman, what are we reading next week well ryan next week in honor of martin luther king jr day two asian dudes are going to talk about black people <laughs> because we are reading two books by comics creator Ho Che Anderson. King, which is a graphic autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. that seeks to probe the man, his accomplishments, and America's racial dilemma. But because one book isn't good enough, we're also reading Ho Che Anderson's Godhead. It's like a corporate thriller. It's about a corporation that discovers us the means to talk to God. From the streets of a working class African-American community into the glimmering halls of corporate America. 